This morning, um, I posted something on social media the other day about how this is a bit of a homecoming and reunion. One is my wife and, and good friend have helped us worship today, and that's special to me. Uh, they're probably new to all of you. Um, but today we are also have another sort of reunion or homecoming in as much as we're going to be looking at the core, the foundation, uh, as we sang or listened to a moment ago, uh, we're returning to the beginning, and that is the gospel itself. Um, we are going to be looking at, in the coming weeks and months, uh, a lot of, a little bit of church history, but a lot of what the early church was about and what they were doing as we try to reformulate and reorient what it means for us to be a church here in Zanesville at this time and place. And in order to do that, we need to be very sure that we are on a firm foundation with what it is that the gospel actually is. Um, and today may be a little bit unsettling for some. Uh, some of this may move the ground below you ever so slightly. Um, and so if, if that's the boat that you're in, I would ask that you just listen, uh, hear the scriptures we're gonna read today, hear some of the points, um, wrestle with it for the week. If you have questions, ask, uh, because it will be, I think for a lot of us, other than what we've heard. Um, and. and could come as, as somewhat of a surprise to some of us. So I ask, if that's you, just bear with me, listen, pray about it, wrestle with it. Um, because I think getting this sort of revamped, fuller understanding of the gospel is, is going to be crucial as we move forward. Today's scripture, uh, primary scripture, is gonna come from 1 Corinthians. It is uh, verse, or chapter 15. Let's see here, there we go. And it's verses three through five. And it reads, and this is Paul, of course, writing, for I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. We'll return to the scripture in a moment. I wanted to start with what for most of us is the gospel message that we were given, the ones that we sort of hold on dearly to. Uh, and often as we're talking to others, there comes a point in a conversation where this comes forward. And it has been developed over the last century to century and a half. Uh, and it has been developed primarily by three Billies, uh, Billy Sunday, who at the turn of the last century was a, a popular uh, preacher and evangelist, uh, Billy Graham, of course, we, most of us probably know that name. Um, and then uh, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and then Bill Bright. And Bill Bright developed what we know as the four spiritual laws. If you've heard those, that's what we're getting ready to talk about because that is usually what we think of when we say the gospel or the gospel message, what is the gospel? And it starts with that God loves you. And I will say, as, as we go through these, this is not untrue. Okay, so don't hear me say this is wrong, uh, but I, we definitely need to tweak it. The first part of this sort of formulation is that God loves you. The second is that humans are sinful. So we have inherited the sin of Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve falls, we find ourselves in that same situation. And so we are then in jeopardy, right? So because you've sinned, you've broken your relationship with God and, and you are in danger. And oftentimes this goes to a hell and brimfire sermon and your danger of going to hell and spending your entire life apart from God, burning and having demons poke at you. Um, and then comes the third point and the, the third law, and is, that is that Jesus, of course, is God's provision for us. He died on the cross to save us. Uh, and then finally, 
you better accept him, otherwise you're going to stay in that state of sin and you're in big trouble. But he, still, he loves you and he wants to be with you, so he's giving you Jesus. So believe and you'll be a Christian. How many people have heard that or some variation thereof? Right? If I asked you what the gospel is, how many of you would say that's the gospel? Yeah. By and large, uh, a lot of us have heard that. It is, um, in large part, a highly Americanized version. And I mentioned it had been developed over the last century to century and a half. Um, and it is designed in order to bring about that decision, right? You, you set up a state that we all find ourselves and then you say, oh, you're in danger. And, and who doesn't want to not go to hell, right? Everybody says, yes, I want that. And so we end up praying that sinner's prayer and then bang, we've created a Christian. And over the last century, it's been highly effective. There have been a lot of people, I can remember growing up in Atlanta, going to the Georgia Dome, hearing, hearing Billy Graham deliver this uh, as he was getting towards the end of his ministry. Uh, and the place was packed. And I don't know how many people ended up saying the sinner's prayer. Uh, I don't remember myself doing it. I was already a Christian. We were just kind of going to see what it was about and hear his message. Um, but thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people had responded to, to this through his ministry and, and the ministry of some of the other men that I've, I've talked about and women over the years. But what we now know is that while it's very good at bringing about a decision for Christ, it is actually pretty terrible at making disciples of Christ. We know now that the pe people that are my age that said prayer and, and older and, and perhaps a little younger, but um, my generation was probably the last that really responded to something like this. We know that 90% of us who heard this message and said this prayer as teenagers by the time we're 35 have nothing to do with the church. All right, so nine out of 10 people who will say this prayer as a, as a teenager in high school or junior high will walk away from the church completely by the time they're 35. And why is that? Uh, that that's a, obviously a, a real important question. If 90% of the people that are praying to ask Jesus into their heart that they don't, you know, they don't, don't wanna go to hell, they wanna believe in Jesus, they, they bail on the church and effectively Jesus and what he wants to do in their life. Why is that? And I would contend today that because that's not the gospel. And again, that probably comes as a little grating on your ears and, and you hear me say that and, and it doesn't feel good. Um, but the reality is the four spiritual laws as presented here, they're nowhere in the New Testament. They're nowhere in the Bible. Now, it's not to say that those principles can't be found here and there, but what you will not find is this formulation presented in the Bible as if this is what you have to believe to be a Christian. And in that way, I stopped short of saying they're a lie, but they are a half-truth. They're like Samuel, our, our now six-year-old, is notorious for coming and, and saying, Mommy, Daddy, Andy hit me. Well, what happened? Well, I was just playing, and, and she was bothering me, and she hit me. And then we go and we ask Andy what the full story was. And we find out that, oh, that's like you were playing, well, that was the start and you got hit, that was the end, but there's this whole story in the middle that you didn't bother to tell us, right? And so, buddy, like it's effectively a lie, right? You, you, you've left out a bulk of the story that, that, well, you pushed her because she asked you to share and you didn't share and you shoved her and then she hit you. So. Like, we kind of need that whole story before we can do anything about it, right? It's, it's, what he said was true, but it's not the truth, right? And, and the four spiritual laws as gospel, they're true, but they're not ultimately the truth, all right? They are not, not really the gospel. Um, what, they, what they do is make it very much about salvation, right? This is, this is the formulation that saves people. And that language, I don't know if it's 
popular in, in this church. This is a more historic church, but certainly in, in more popular, uh, more modern, certainly in the sort of Pentecostal movement, uh, non-denominational movement. I, you hear that phrase a lot, I got saved. I need to get saved, right? I need to go to church, get saved, right? When did you get saved, right? And it it's becomes this phrase that we use over and over talking about becoming a Christian. And um, it's in large part because this is the proposition that we put out to the world. It's all about getting saved. And it's actually a really short step from the gospel is about getting saved to the gospel and religion and Jesus are about me. Does that make sense? It's, it's really not that, it's, I'm not saying that it is that, but it's not very far. And as I'm sure you've heard over and over, we have a consumeristic church culture that is very much about what did I get out of the service today? All right, and that's just the reality of the church. And, and we've set it up over the last hundred years in part by saying, the gospel is all about how you get saved. All right, it's all about me. I'm, I'm gonna be able to be good for eternity. And then it's, okay, well, what did I get out of worship today? Right, did I like the music? Did the sermon speak to me, right? And Joey's saying, no, you didn't like it today. Right, and salvation is, is a very big deal. Like don't, I, again, I, I wanna reiterate, I'm not saying that that's not a big deal, that that's not important, it's not a crucial fundamental part of the gospel, but it itself by, alone is not the gospel. In making, making it about salvation, we've created uh, what some people have called a salvation culture. And it is the language that we uh, just spoke about where we're talking about getting saved. The purpose of being the church in the world is to go to get people saved. And we talked two weeks ago about how um, as we become the church, what, what we need to be doing is going out and connecting people to God and to the story of God. And that's a, that's a different way of thinking about it. It's a, it can be just a different way of saying the same thing, but it also can be a much broader, larger mission. And I think as we go through today, by the time we're done, we're gonna understand why the gospel is ultimately a lot, a lot larger. It's more than just salvation culture. And we need to move from salvation culture to gospel culture because the gospel is ultimately not about you, right? Who's the gospel about? I heard it. Jesus, right? Right, it's, it's not a trick question, right? <laughs> right. Um, this word, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously f- kind of a funny word. It's, it's called euangelion. The first word there is actually the actual Greek. I just wanted to see what, show you what it looked like. The second is how you spell it, or, or would say it in English. And it, it literally means new, good news. And this word is all over the New Testament, right? It is the word for gospel. It is translated often as good news. Um, and we actually get our word evangelism. You can kind of see how we change the U to a V and all of a sudden it becomes evangelism. And so if you think about what evangelism is, it's to spread the good news. Literally, by definition, it is the good news. And as you're reading through your, your English translations, as you, as you, anytime you see good news, you can think in the back of your head, gospel. Right? So you actually like can read that into it. So you, hear God, you read Jesus you know, speaking the good news, Jesus is speaking the gospel. Right? And, and that's kind of an important uh, pickup as we go through today. I wanted to make sure that you understood that euangelion in the Greek means gospel and it gets translated often as good news, but it is gospel, okay? Uh, it's also important to understand that, that that was not a new term. There's a reason that the early church, the gospel writers used that term. A gospel, a euangelion uh, in that time and place was an announcement, and it was most often an announcement of a new emperor. And so that when Augustus or Octavian or any of the Roman emperors would ascend to the throne, they would send out a gospel 
to be read through all of the territory, all of the region to announce their reign. And this is just a bit, a bit from Octavian's. It says, because providence has ordered our life in a divine way. And since the emperor through his epiphany has exceeded the hopes of former good news, euangelia, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since the birthday of the God, emperors were thought to be gods, all right? So they mean the emperor there. So the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of his good news, gospel. May it therefore be decreed that, and it goes on to say much more about how great and powerful and godly the new emperor is. But the gospel, was already a thing. And so when the early church comes on, when Jesus comes on the scene and starts talking about gospel, people have baggage with that. They have understanding with, of what that word means. And it is an announcement. And it is a particular kind of announcement. It's an announcement that is going to rival the, the, the claims and the announcement of the Roman emperors. What do we call the first four books of our New Testament? Yeah, yeah. Again, not a trick question, right? They're gospels right? And, and what are they? Particularly the first three. We call them the synoptic gospels because they are, what, what's in them? The story, the story of Jesus, right? So where the four spiritual laws basically say, Genesis 3, you've sinned, and then they jump all the way to the end of the gospels, Jesus died. The gospels take a lot of effort. The gospel writers take a lot, expend a lot of effort in making you understand that there's this whole story of a man named Jesus who lived and did things, said things, taught things, created a people before he ever died, right? If, if it was just the four spiritual laws, we can really just skip from Genesis three and then they can just tell us, hey, there's this dude, Jesus, and he came and he died for you and he, he's raised and went to heaven. Why spend all of that extra time telling the story? Well, it's because the story is important and ultimately it's the story that becomes the gospels. Um, and, and the gospels are, it has been said, the story of how God becomes king, All right? And so it is crucial today, one, the, the point, one of the main points I want you to hear me say, we're gonna really talk about this next week in terms of the importance for understanding this to be a church, that the gospels are the story about how God becomes king, okay? There are four sort of themes that are coming together, and we've talked about these a little bit already in our previous weeks. They come together, they're drawn together by all four of the gospel writers. Um, and, and Paul picks up on them and the other writers of the New Testament do as well. And the first is that the gospel, the story of Jesus is the extension and ultimately the climax of the story of Israel. So the story that God has been telling through and with his people for the entire Old Testament is now finding its culmination and its fulfillment. And we use those words, you find those words all over the New Testament in Jesus. We often, like I said, we skip from Genesis all the way to Matthew, right? So we, we move from fall, we're sinful, into maybe the beginning, usually the end of the gospel, like we said, but maybe we skip to the beginning, but we also need to understand that there's the whole Old Testament. So there's this whole thousands and thousands of years of history of God's people um, being given instructions and trying to live in covenant faithfulness that matters, right? That is building towards the coming Christ that will ultimately set things right. And if we don't understand that, at least 
in a, in, a, in a story way. You don't have to understand necessarily every single nuance and every word in the Old Testament. But if you don't understand what was, what was happening with Abraham and the early fathers of, of Israel, right? If you don't understand the Exodus, if you don't understand the exile, if you don't understand the things and the, the way that the prophets were speaking and the judges before them, if we don't have an understanding of that, we're going to miss much of what Jesus has to say to us. It's important that he stands as the high point, the climax of the story that has come before him. Um, and we often, we often miss that. I mean, if you think about the gospels themselves, all four of them make this point really clearly if you're paying attention. Matthew starts with the genealogy, which is terribly boring, right? But his first chapter is just, Abraham came and then a son and a son and a son and a son and there's a, there's a woman in there and then more sons until we get to Jesus. That's Matthew's way of saying this is picking up and continuing all that has come before it, right? In Mark, Mark starts with John the Baptist and on John the Baptist's lips, he puts um, prophecies from uh, Isaiah and I believe the Psalms if I remember correctly, right? And it's his way of saying the forerunner, John the Baptist, is picking up the prophetic tradition that we find in the tail end of our Old Testament and continuing that as the, the forerunner, and that's the terms he used, the forerunner of the Jesus that is to come. And so he ties it all together. Um, Luke will also use John the Baptist early on, but then he also, if you think of Mary's, it's called the Magnificat, that song that she sings, and then particularly the one that Zachariah sings that sit in the front of his his, uh, his gospel in chapter one, all in chapter one, I believe, they hearken back and t- retell the story of Israel and the coming Messiah that will ultimately be Jesus. And, and Mary's song is lifted from an almost an exact rep- replication of the song that Hannah sang when Samuel was born in the Old Testament. Samuel, obviously, of course, being the prophet that would anoint Saul and David. Um, and so it's Luke's way of bringing back the storylines of the Old Testament as he opens his gospel to make everyone well aware that this is the continuation and ultimately the fulfillment of the story that we've been hearing, we've been telling, that we, the, the nation of Israel, have been living for thousands of years. And then John, as he opens, he opens with, in the beginning was the word, right? And if that's not a direct link back to Genesis, in the beginning, it's hard to see what else is. And so he opens by explaining how Jesus was God, was with God, and was present and the driving force to the entire story. And so all four gospels in their own way make sure that we understand that this is a continuation of Israel's story. The next theme, these are start to go a little bit quicker now, um, is that this is God's return. And it dovetails and picks up on the last point in that the promise was that God would be coming back. And we talked two weeks ago when we were talking about temple about how with the tabernacle initially God descends in his glory upon that temple and takes up residence with his people. And then later with the first temple, he descended upon the temple and takes up residence with his people. God's promise is that he will live with us. And by the time the first century rolls around, that second temple has been built, has been rebuilding, is continuing to be built onto and renovated and, and built into sort of a, a gaudy monstrosity but God has never returned. And so Israel's still waiting for that. And so while and in a lot of ways we miss the first point that it's Israel's story being continued, um, we get this point, the fact that it's God, right? And we, we talk about the incarnation, but we make it 
all about God being present and we forget that that is the fulfillment of a promise and that is the way that it has always been. And so we have to put it in that historical context and understand that it is actually God's return to his people. And then the, the, the fourth point, um, we often take the gospels and, and we'll understand them as um, the launching of the church, right? They are the, the, the teachings and the life lessons that we as the church ought to have, which is not incorrect. But again, we need to sort of massage that a little, in a little bit and understand that in the same way it's God returning, this is God relaunching, renewing his covenant people, right? And, and Paul makes the point over and over that the gospel and Jesus even um, makes the point that the gospel is first for the Jews to renew them, to, to bring them back into right relationship and then for the Gentiles. And so we often, and, and, and sometimes even get into some bad places where we talk about Israel is no longer needed. God was done and threw them away and created this new thing called the church. When, when in fact, what he's doing is just renewing, sort of recreating with the material he's already got this new thing and launching it. So it, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a massage. This is a point that we don't miss entirely. However, the fourth point is one that we, particularly as modern Western American Christians, just don't pay any attention to. And that is the extent to which the gospel is a clash of kingdoms, right? And we, you see, we know that once you know what, the gospel, what a gospel was, you, you understand that just to say that it is a gospel is to make a claim against the Roman Empire because the gospel was the good news of the Caesar. And for the church, for Jesus to come and say, I have a gospel is a counterclaim. And you can't get away from the tension and the clash that's going to be coming in the story and ought to continue today in the church between the good news, the kingdom of God and the, the kingdoms of the world. And, and we have largely, like I said, screened this out entirely. Um, but if you think back to the story of God's return and what was expected, they were expecting a Messiah, right? What is a Messiah? It's louder. The savior. Um, it gets translated Christ. You know, Christ is not a name, right? Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. The Messiah was to be in whose, whose line, whose lineage was the prophecy? He would become from a David. Who's David? The what? Yeah, the second what? The king, right? Messiah ultimately is king. Messiah, of course, is savior, but we say savior because we have the four spiritual laws, because we have salvation culture. We have missed the larger gospel culture, the gospel narrative. Messiah is king. It's also savior, but Messiah is king. If you think about the final moments of Jesus when he's with Pilate, and you think of that interaction when they're having this debate about kingdom, you see clearly Pilate talking about, if you were truly a king, your, your people would take up arms. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. My kingdom's not of this world. If it was, they would do that, but mine's something different. So there's this sort of even theological and, and metaphysical or existential debate going on. Like what exactly is the kingdom there? Pilate doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to say, but those two things come right into conflict right there. Um, in, the, in the final week during Passion Week, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they ask Jesus about paying the tax, if you remember that, and that's where we get the 
sort of off-quoted line, render to Caesar, Caesar's render to God, God's, right? Um, but that whole question was a gotcha question, actually, because they were asking what they should do about the head tax. The head tax is the tax that Rome levied against their subjects just for the privilege of being part of the Roman Empire. So we conquered you, and now you have the privilege of paying us a tax. And that's what that was about. And as prior people had r- sort of arisen and claimed to be messiahs, they would always lead an armed revolt, and they would tell everyone to stop paying the head tax. And when they, when they did those things, Rome would come crushing down upon them and they, they would destroy them, they would crucify them, all right? And so that question is a trick question posed to Jesus trying to get him in trouble. They thought they've got him because what they expect him to say is don't pay the head tax and they know as soon as they say that, Rome's coming in, right? As, as soon as we get an actual revolt, Rome will put it down. And so they're trying to bait him and he answers in that sort of famous way. But that whole question is about clash of kingdom, what do we do with empire? What do the people of God, the renewed people of God do in relationship to empire? And what I think is actually one of the most interesting ways in which we see these things coming to a head, it's, it's hard to see because they're so far apart, but we know that Luke wrote Luke and Acts, right? It's part one and part two of the story. And after chapter one, Luke tells about John the Baptist and again has Mary's song and Zechariah's song. And he gets into chapter two and he starts uh, telling us about Jesus, right? What is the first thing we know? What's the, the Christmas story? How does the Christmas story start? There you go, yep. Augustus sends out a decree that everyone is supposed to be taxed, right? So Luke starts his gospel with Rome exerting its authority over the people of God, right? Everybody's got to go back. And, and we see obviously that God uses that to get Mary and Joseph where they need to be to fulfill prophecy. But then if you skip all the way to the end of Acts, what is the very last scene in Acts? It's a trickier question, right? It's, we don't hear this one every year at Christmas. The very last scene of Acts is Paul in Rome preaching the gospel. So Luke in his story has bookended his story one, at one end at the beginning is Rome exerting authority, being the empire, lording over the world. And at the end is Paul in Rome, taking it to the kingdom, freely preaching the gospel of Christ. And so he bookends with this tension between kingdoms. The gospel is not just a story of salvation. It is the story of how Jesus and therefore God becomes king. I said earlier that Christ is the Greek translation for Messiah, which was a king. We're now gonna look at uh, six different short snippets in which the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself tell us about the gospel. The first one's gonna come from Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 2, 8. And Paul, the writer of Timothy, um, says this to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus the king raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel. No spiritual laws. Doesn't even mention salvation. The gospel is the king of the world, God incarnate, dead, resurrected, and enthroned. The second one we're gonna look look at is our scripture for today that I read earlier, right? It says, for I handed on to you. Now, handed on to you is technical terminology. It is the term that is used for when rabbis pass their 
school of thought onto the next disciple. And so it is the passing on of everything that is important theologically from one generation to the next. And so Paul says, I have handed on to you of first importance what I in turn received. All right, so it's what he received from Jesus, right? And so he didn't make it up that Christ, that the king died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There we go, back to the Old Testament. Like it was all part of the story that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. That's what Paul wants us to know is of first importance. Crucial to the gospel understanding is king embodied God, died, buried, resurrected. The next two are gonna come from Acts. These are from two of Peter's speeches. The first we're gonna read is from chapter 10, and this is right after he has encountered Cornelius. And this is the moment when God gives him the vision and he understands that the gospel is for the whole world, not just for Jews. And he says, you know the message he sent to the people of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. And peace here is not peace with God, peace is peace among people. So peace between Jews and Gentiles. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. No four laws there, right? The gospel is the story of Jesus, what he did, the good that he did, the things that he taught, and then his death and resurrection and appearance. And then from earlier in the second chapter, this is right after Pentecost, this is Peter's response. Remember, they, they, a bunch of people said, these guys, they've got to be drunk. And he says, no, 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 they're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he launches into uh, quite a sermon. And this is a portion of it. It says, fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. Here again, the history of Israel and the promises that were made. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So there, Peter is not saying, believe and you be saved. What he's claiming is that God has become our Messiah the promises that he made have been fulfilled. And that is the good news. The good news is that God himself has become king of the world, right? And then the last two we're gonna look at um, are Jesus himself. This is in the first chapter of Mark after John the Baptist has had his uh, little brief scene at the opening, which we said earlier is Mark's way of connecting the story to the Old Testament. He says, uh, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. I told you earlier that you can substitute gospel anytime you see good news. So Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there you see that Jesus himself 
for Jesus, the gospel is the coming kingdom of God. And why is the kingdom coming? Well, of course, that kind of answers itself. It's because Jesus is the king. And now that he's here, the kingdom is here. And the second one also from Jesus, this is early in Luke's gospel in chapter four. Um, Jesus has begun his healing ministry and he's in Capernaum and the crowds have been nagging him day after day to, to continue to do these miraculous things. And it says at daybreak, he departed and went into a deserted place and the crowds were looking for him. And when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities for I was sent for this purpose. And you see very clearly there that Jesus identifies his purpose on earth. The purpose of his mission is the proclamation and the bringing about of the kingdom. To tell the gospel is not then to recite four spiritual laws. To tell the gospel is to tell the life of the the Messiah, the things that he did, the fact that he died, that he was resurrected, and that he ascended and is now sitting at the right hand of God as our king. That is the gospel, and it has lots of implications. Salvation is one of them. But we are a long way then from just the four spiritual laws. Think for a minute, those of you who have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, people have read C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've seen the movie, you know the story. Think about if you can recall reading that story and then hearing the sort of various characters, the animals speak of Aslan, who for C.S. Lewis is the Jesus creature, character. He's a a, a lion in the stories. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you hear rumblings rumblings about Aslan and sort of the, the tension builds, the expectation builds that he comes on the scene and then he finally does. And he's this majestic lion Um, And then you get to know him and you hear him speak and you're just immediately drawn to him as a character. And then comes the time at the stone temple or stone, stone table when Aslan puts his life on the line for Edward, one of the four kids who had betrayed his brothers and sisters. Aslan, just like Jesus, puts his life on the line and saves Edward and he's killed. And there's that moment, especially if you're with children watching the movie or reading the story of just complete and utter grief. This character that you've been introduced to as as the hero of the story is now dead. And you for a moment don't know what to do. And then pages later or minutes later, you're watching the movie, uh, Aslan is back. And in the movie, he kind of comes over this hill with the sun behind him, it's this majestic moment and everyone's cheering because Aslan is back, right? And then if you go on to read the other books uh, or watch like Prince Caspian, I think is the second movie in the series that they did. That entire movie, when I watched it, I'm just waiting for Aslan to show up, right? It's like, come on, let's get the story. Where's Aslan, where's Aslan? Because you know he's the hero, right? But telling the story of Jesus, the gospel works that way, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reason it works that way because Aslan is Jesus in, in C.S. Lewis's stories but he tells it in such a way that you're just, you're, you can't wait to see the king again. And we as a church need to develop a gospel culture in which we're able to rehearse the narrative, to tell the story, in which we understand the story in such a way that is so compelling that people can't wait to hear more about Jesus. In our last church, uh, which obviously my wife was part of, but Daniel was part of as well, uh, we took two years and went through Luke. Every word, 
we read, every story we told, we unpacked. Two years. What's the longest sermon series you sat through? <laughs> right? four, four weeks, eight weeks, maybe, right? And yeah, we took breaks here and there because something would come up or, or there was an event in the world that we needed to discuss or something happened in the life of the church that we need to talk about. But for two years, we did nothing but read Luke. And it was the most transformative and powerful thing that I've been a part of because it was telling the gospel. And I got to watch every Sunday as people connected with that story. I can't tell you the, the tears that were shed, the smiles, the joy that was had as people began to understand who Jesus actually is. You don't ultimately have to recite four spiritual laws if you just tell people who Jesus is and let them get to know him, right? People love Jesus. I mean, how many times have you even heard, oh, I love the Jesus character, I just hate the church. Well, in part because the church has gotten away from Jesus, but what that tells you is even the people who aren't part of the church, they love Jesus. And ultimately the story of Jesus is the gospel. And we've done, a, done the church and Jesus and the gospel a disservice by distilling it down to four spiritual laws to try to get somebody to say the sinner's prayer and then we got them, they're saved. Another check on the list, right? It's not the gospel and it's not the way the church should be operating. To tell the gospel is to tell the story of how God became king. And the fact that we have king, a king, the fact that we are gospel people has lots of implications. One of them is that we are saved, but it's so much more than that. It means that we almost, we're almost there, right? But if Jesus is the climax, that means we are, for those of you who know your proper literature terms, what, what part of the story do we live in? Yeah, the resolution, the French term is the denouement, right? right? If you remember that from grade school, right? But we're in the resolution, right? We're, we're almost to the happily ever after part. We're not quite there, but we live having the knowledge of how the story comes to its fulfillment. And that's, that's a beautiful place to be. We live having the gospel. We live with the story. We live with the knowledge of who Jesus is and with the ability to allow that to transform our lives. God himself has come to dwell upon with, it, with us, right? In, in the incarnation in Jesus, but then also as he sends his spirit. We talked two weeks ago about what the church is, that it's a spiritual building and that we are the blocks that make it up and that it is in our midst that God resides and God comes to live. The king lives in and among us. It is more than just the incarnation in Jesus. We therefore are a part of his renewed family and we are called to extend that family, to bring others into the story, to give them the gift of salvation, but the gift that is so much more than that. And we must rekindle the awareness and come to terms as individualistic Western Americans that we live in a kingdom and are its citizens. And that one's tough but we have a king. We don't, as Americans, like to hear that. We are individuals, we live in a democracy. 200 plus years ago, we shed off the monarchy because it was no good. But the truth of the matter is, we live in a monarchy as people of God. And Jesus is our king. 
it means that he gets to make demands on us. And this is something that we're going to delve deeper into next week and in the coming weeks. But God, as the king, as the monarch, if there's any, any king who ever has a divine right, it's Jesus. So he gets to tell us what to do. And so when he says, seek justice, we better start seeking justice. When he says, feed the hungry, we better be feeding the hungry. And we're gonna do that next week. When he says, help the poor, we better help the poor because our king has told us to do that. Those are our marching instructions, right? That's, that's the thing that we ought to be doing. We ought to be, as some of us do, go on prayer walks, praying with our neighbors. And we ought to be, as the great commandment tells us, loving our neighbors, loving our God, and making disciples of all the world. And yes, there is salvation. At the end of it, when our days are done, we pass from this life to the next, we get to go in paradise with Jesus, where we will await the coming resurrection. But y'all, that's not today for most of us, right? We got life to live. And that life lived ought to be a gospel life. There are implications of the gospel beyond the coming salvation and eternal life. There's an implication for here and now. And so for some of you, as I said, this is probably a little bit unsettling, perhaps. Hopefully you understand now where I was going with that um, and, and begin to see that maybe this is more than just the sinner's prayer, that when we go out into the world and we start to speak the good news of Jesus, it's more than just getting the conversation to move along until we can get them through the four points so that we can have them say that prayer with us. And again, it's not to say that that moment of accepting God is not important, it is. It's a beautiful moment. And to be able to walk someone through that decision to get there is an honor like no other. But what it means to be people of the gospel means that and much, much more. Say a word of prayer and then we'll get into worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, that you have come to live among us in bodily form 2,000 years ago, that he has taught us how to live, how to be your sons and daughters. We thank you, of course, that he made the ultimate sacrifice, that he did, did die for our sins, and that, that means that we are saved, that we do get to come into right relationship with you. But we also recognize, God, that not only was sacrifice made, but then he was resurrected, he was vindicated, and then days later he was ascended to the throne, that on the other side of the grave, Jesus is the living king of all the world. And God, we just ask that you would help work our hearts, work our minds, so that we may come into a fuller understanding and appreciation of what that means, that we have a king that rules the world, that we are called to be on his side, that we are called to seek justice, to love our neighbors. We are called to tell the story of his life and his death, his resurrection, and his enthronement. As we move into a time of worship, God, we just ask that you would give us a spirit of love and of adoration and of reverence, knowing that we sing 
to the almighty King, the Lord of the world. Be with us now. We pray all these things in your son's name and the power of your spirit. Amen.